Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment. Weekly concert listings. Weekly event listings. The environment. Travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader. Free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Hello. Welcome to the second virtual First Tuesdays broadcast held this this time around live from the hideout for me and Ben. We are currently in two separate spaces oh. in the hideout, and we are so excited to have everyone join us. Just a quick housekeeping note before we get started, everyone who is watching the broadcast on the Noon Chorus website, um, we will be taking questions um, about 45 minutes into uh, our conversation. So if you hover your uh, cursor over the top of the um, of the video in the Noon Chorus website, and on the top in the top right hand corner, you should see a little open chat icon. So if you click that, that will let you into the chat and uh, you can then send us questions. Feel free to ask questions as soon as they come up. Um, we will get to them a little bit later. Um, don't be shy to discuss. So uh, the chat should be when you open it should be on the right side of your screen. All right. So without further ado, uh, I am Maya Dukmasova. I'm a staff writer at the Chicago Reader. And of course, uh, you all probably know my co-host, Ben Jarofsky. All right, Maya, I'll take it from there. Uh, our guest, Alderwoman Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez from the 33rd Ward on the near northwest side of Chicago, and Peter P.C. Cunningham, as I like to call him, uh, speechwriter for, let me just set this up. Uh, Maya, let me just take a moment to set this up. Uh, Rosanna Rodriguez was uh, elected in 2019 running as she didn't hold back. She was a democratic socialist. She was not afraid to say defund the police. I bring her on my radio show and I'd be like, Rosanna, are you sure you want to say that? Because you're not going to get elected. She goes, Ben, I didn't get elected to worry about getting reelected. So she sticks to her convictions. Uh, she voted against uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot's budget on Tuesday. Uh, and we were playing her. Folks were listening to my podcast today. We were playing a lot of her excerpts from her uh, her speech uh, during that budget vote. Peter Cunningham, no stranger to the Ben Jarofsky show. He's a regular. He's our uh, show centrist. Uh, every show, ha every lefty show has to have one. He was a speechwriter for um, Mayor Daley back in the 90s in the O's. He went to work for Arnie, excuse me, in the 90s. He worked for Arnie Duncan uh, as his press secretary when Arnie was uh well, at the Board of Education here in Chicago and uh, Secretary of the Department of Education in the Obama administration. And now he's become a big advocate for alternative forms of policing. And we talk a lot about that 
uh, when Peter comes on my show. Uh, we're talking about where the Democratic Party is going, where progressive politics is going, uh, you know, is can we bridge sort of the divides uh, in the party right now between the left and the center or the right of the Democratic Party? Uh, so that's sort of the general topic of conversation we're going to be following today. Uh, we'll probably do a lot of talk on national, but if uh, if we have time, Maya, you know, you I and think I will we'll get some local talk. Local talk too. Yeah. So why don't you take it away, Maya, with the first question? Yeah, so I would love to jump right in and hear what both of you think about um, the sort of what is your own uh, post-election analysis, so to speak? So after the long week of waiting to figure out all the ballot counts, you know, we've emerged with a new president, uh, president-elect Joe Biden. And uh, one of the main kind of narratives about this election that's emerged has been about how the Democratic Party managed to secure the victory on, on it for the presidency, but there were several um, House of Representative seats that were that were lost, and the Senate is still hanging in the balance um, since there's two um, senator races that are going to be decided in Georgia. So one of the things that kind of emerged pretty quickly after the election was this uh, off the record phone call, uh, like a conference call that was uh, that was held uh, by Abigail Spanberger, who's a congresswoman from Virginia, and this was leaked to the Washington Post uh, pretty quickly after it happened, and uh, she basically was talking about how. Uh, the Democrats can't be talking about socialism, can't be talking about abolishing, abolishing the police, that it really freaks people out. And that's not a winning strategy to um, to, to secure more Democratic uh, congressional seats. And that that kind of messaging actually was responsible for some folks losing their seats. So on the other hand, uh, the kind of Lefty side of the of, of the party, AOC and, and the rest of the squad, the analysis pretty quickly came, you know, emerged as like, no, we're 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 never, you know, my understanding of their analysis is that focusing on the swing voters and the moderates and trying to flip them to the Democratic Party is not as meaningful of a future, you know, long-term strategy than mobilizing newer voters, people who don't tend to vote, younger voters, with a more progressive message. So I'm curious to hear what both of you think. Um, Peter, do you want to jump in and uh, start us off? Or Rosanna, if you want to begin, that's fine. Either way. You, you can go. I, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. All right. Well, I think that um, there's a lot about the election that is just mind blowing. Uh, I mean, the first thing is that Donald Trump got 10 million more votes than he got last time. And this is after four years of watching this despicable, incompetent fool uh, lead the country down one stupid rabbit hole after another. Um, so uh, I just think that it's, it's you know, we just all have to really reflect on what that means. Uh, I, I, I think a lot of the Biden vote was an anti-Trump vote. I don't think people were excited by Biden, except the fact that he was going to save us from uh, from uh, Trump. Um, I mean, some people were, but I, I think a, a good third of his vote were people who are really voting against Trump. Um, which I think uh, is going to dictate in a certain way uh, what kind of a president he'll be. You know, I, I read an analysis the other day that showed Hillary beat Hillary lost to Trump by 78,000 votes in three states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Biden beat Trump by 44,000 votes in three states, Georgia, Arizona and Wisconsin. So 
it was actually closer in a way, even though the popular vote was 6 million. So I think that uh, we are here just by just, I won't say luck, but every single vote counted. And everybody who says they take credit for the election needs to be a little humble about that. You know, it was suburbanites, it was progressive, it was people of color, it was uh, some women, it was uh, a lot of moderates, it, it was very few Republicans, as best I could tell. I mean, Trump upped his numbers by 10 million. So I think um, the, the real story is that Trump would have coasted to a re-election, I think, if it wasn't for COVID. And that's kind of sobering when I really think about what that means. Um, I have a lot more to say, but I'll stop there. Um, I, I actually agree with, with Peter in the assessment around the fact that Biden won because people didn't want Donald Trump. And I think it is important to remember in this particular moment of what was it that brought us Donald Trump in the first place, because those conditions didn't change, right? Um, people are still in need of basic things that they don't have access to. But when we look at um, at who campaigned hard for Biden, the left went hard for Biden because the left understood what was at stake. If we if we continued with a, a Donald Trump presidency, the threat to the little bit of democracy that we still have in the United States um, was was at risk, right? Um, and and so much more. So, so many grassroots groups that are left went out to knock doors, went out to, um, to put it to fundraise, to put it out there that we really needed to make sure that we got Trump out. And that was the message. The message was not even like, yeah, Biden, the message was, we have to get rid of Trump. That was the message. And I think that it is really important to remember how hard the left went. I know, Peter, that you're saying that we need to be sober and say, you know, he won because all of these people voted. But, but you also have to think about who are the people that are going hard campaigning, who are the people that are giving their free time in order to be able to get that work done. And that came a lot from the left, from immigrant rights groups particularly, but I mean, from a lot of different grassroots uh, groups. I think it's also really interesting that um, a lot of, of, of candidates in the House that run on Medicare for All, all of them won their seats. I think that that speaks to, to a, a, a broader message that people are um, uh, receiving and receptive to, like people want to be able to have health care. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I, I think that there's a lot to, um, to unpack, uh, but I do think that the left did everything that the left could in this election and that there's still a lot of reception for that message. So when I hear the Democratic Party leadership saying that you should not be talking about socialism and that the idea of socialism almost cost Joe Biden the election, I think that it's so disingenuous um, and it's very disconnected from reality. Yeah, to the, to the left's credit, a lot of them are down in Georgia right now trying to win those yep. Senate seats. Very uh, true. So, uh, you know, there's no question they're a, a vital part of the party today and they'll be an even more vital part of the party tomorrow. That said, uh, I talked to a, um, uh, a Democratic congresswoman who is in a rural district who was reelected, and she said, in my district, no one polls higher than local police. No one. 
zero. And I think we all know that the experience of people in rural America, the experience of white people in rural America with police is not exactly the same experience that people of color in cities like Chicago have. So there's an issue where one of the challenges for us as Democrats is to figure out how to both address it and talk about it uh, in ways that uh, uh, respect the different experiences people have. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I think, very closely aligned with you on this whole issue here in Chicago. I think we spend too much money on policing and not enough on the kind of people who can really solve problems and prevent crimes. Um, I, as Ben mentioned, I do a lot of work with Chicago Cred, um, and I, uh, I, I, I think that we could do with far fewer people responding to incidents with armed police, and we could use unarmed professionals to handle an awful lot of things that right now we send police to. Whether that's a solution that rural America needs is another story. But that, isn't it, if if this the thing that changed uh, the course of this election really was a story about turnout, was the fact that a lot of people motivated by this like frustration and anger and fear about another four years of Trump um, actually mobilized, were helped to mobilize, were mobilized and turned out. I mean, if if the Democratic Party put in as much effort into into helping people actually turn out and getting new people, new voters to the polls, do we really need to worry about converting people in rural America in terms of their views about the police hmm. or, other, or other progressive issues? Do we need to worry about changing the minds of those voters if the party adopted a strategy that was not about flipping people that already vote, but turning out new voters? No, I think I think that we absolutely need to be concerned with rural America, <laughs> and and I think that the way you do that is by bettering the conditions of living of people in rural America. Uh, there there are no jobs, right? Like their their life conditions are are horrible, and and when you have that kind of condition, like the lack of meeting basic needs, you're going to have people that are going to become radicalized. And I think that that polarization in this particular election, yes, a lot of people came out to vote from both sides because a lot of like, because both sides were scared, right, that the other side was going to win and that things were going to get worse for them. So, so, um, and in terms of rural America, the 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 fear is to continue, you know, not having those basic things that everybody should have, like access to jobs and healthcare and all of that. And I think that Trump. I mean, he's a master of like, I mean, he's a con artist and he's a master of like selling this, you know, snake oil to, to people and, and they see that he feeds them, right? And, and he, and, and the messaging um, that has been used from the right the whole time is the scapegoating thing, right? Like these immigrants and all of these people are against you. They, they want to take your jobs and they want to take, you know, they, they are taking money from the government with like welfare and, and, and it is this, this constant fear, right, that the very little that they have is going to be taken away. Um, and, and Trump made sure that he, that they knew that he was hearing them, right? He was empowering, he was emboldening this messaging. Um, so when it came time to vote, I think that, you know, both the left and the right were like, oh my God, if we have a little bit more of this, like, I don't know how we're going to survive it. And for people of color, it, just to think to have four more years of Trump, it, it was frightening, and, I, and, 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 and people acted with that urgency, right? 
Peter, uh, I'll just put it to you right here. I'll get your thoughts on this and get Rosanna's thoughts. I, I, I'm not so much. I, Rosanna said something that I wrote down uh, that um, uh, Trump uh, took advantage of of calling Joe Biden a socialist and uh, got a, a great turnout um, by uh, calling Joe Biden a socialist. I don't think the problem with the socialist label hurt Biden. I think it hurt the down ballots. And I'm looking at state legislative uh, races throughout the country that the Republicans won, holding on to state houses where they can gerrymander congressional districts uh, in the next go around, winning congressional seats, uh, holding on to congressional seats that Democrats lost actually uh, in, in the Congress. And then, of course, I mean, emerging somehow or other. Uh, right now with the majority in the Senate. And it seems as though that's what um, moderate Democrats are saying, that uh, on, in local races, in congressional races, in state rep races, uh, these labels are killing us. And I mean, I've it, read that. I've heard that. Yeah, and, and that without Trump, this is weird, but without Trump as like the person that unites Anybody with decency, let's say, to vote no, the Democrats are in a lot of trouble. I only, uh, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you, I kind of only half buy it um, because I think that Republicans would call us socialists and weaponize the word socialist no matter what we did. Uh, the fact that we actually have some actual socialists now in the Democratic Party who identify as socialists and uh, is, is uh, maybe a reason why I half buy it. We actually do. We had Bernie Sanders really was a, a national leader in the party. Um, he emerged as a national leader and he never was really right until 16. Uh, he was always sort of seen as a fringe guy. Uh, there weren't a lot of DSAs uh, elected at, at the local level. Um, but I think the, uh, I think what's really going on and what really went on in these red districts was anti-elitism. And I think that that's the, the basis of Trump's um, movement, so to speak, is anti-elitism. And I think that Democrats should reflect on how we uh, have become elitist in many ways. And that, I think, is part of the problem with our brand. And my greatest hope for um, for this Biden administration and really for the next you know, uh, era of democratic politics is that we rebrand around bread and butter issues. You've heard me say it before, Ben. Uh, but I think, and you know, Rosanna, you just mentioned some of the issues that, you know, matter the most. I always, I always talk about the same five over and over again, job, home, healthcare, education, and retirement. Mm -hmm. And I think if the democratic party branded itself around those issues, that doesn't mean they have to abandon police reform or abandon Green New Deal or abandon uh, any other issues. But if somebody said, what does the Democratic Party stand for? They ought to say they stand for making sure that everybody has a chance for those four or five basic issues that represent the middle class dream. And I think that that's our problem, uh, not just in rural America, but in lots of places in America, in the Hispanic uh, community, for example, Latino community, um, in you know some of the places around the country where the Latino vote was especially uh, uh, high for Trump, uh, you know, noticeably high. Latinos came out for Trump uh, for Biden in the right states. Uh, they made a difference in Arizona. They made a difference in Nevada. 
and I think a couple of other states that were swing. Um, but uh, I've read a lot about how uh, they came out much stronger for Trump, like in southern Texas, than people expected. And I think it's because we're just not on that bread and butter uh, message enough. And that's what I think needs to be front and center. And this is a, and with Biden as president, I think we have a chance to rebrand in that direction. Yeah, I was going to throw it to Rosanna as well, because I mean, I feel like this election is like really a moment when this country and people who are like study politics here and observe have gotten a reality check about the fact that Latinos are not a monolith, that Latinos are not like uniformly going to be voting for Democrats or socialists or any or, or progressive candidates in that places like South Florida and places like Texas uh, and other parts of the Southwest, I mean, people, the Latino community is just as politically heterogeneous as the rest of the country. And the, I mean, there's also, a, I feel like there's also like a racial dynamic that never gets talked about when people talk about the Latino vote. You know, you've got like people who might be like, you know, recent immigrants and migrant workers from Central America or Mexico in the Southwest, but that's like not at all the same people as like third generation Cubans in Miami. Um, so yeah, I'm curious to kind of like, we're just watching the conversation and the bafflement about like, what about the Latinos and how come they're voting for Trump? What, like, what, what were your thoughts about all this? Right. I wanted, I wanted to first respond to, um, or follow up with a little bit of what Peter was saying before about how the, the Democratic Party has to be talking about bread and butter issues, because I think that that is what the people who have branded themselves socialists uh, are doing and have been doing, you know, talking about oh, we all need housing and we need jobs and uh, we need health care. And it, I mean, it's just a humane thing to, to talk about anyway. But in terms of messaging, I feel like they have captured the, the attention and the imagination of people because at this point, after what, like, you know, more than 30 years, 50 years of neoliberal policies and this trickle-down, like, <laughs> idea that the rich are somehow going to save us. Um, people have even forgotten that that is a possibility. The government can actually provide um, things for people, right? Like, uh, services for people. And, 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 you know, what we see, what we keep, we, we keep moving away from, from that idea. And I think that we need to actually go back and rescue it. In terms of um, the Latino vote, um yeah that was uh <laughs> that, that was a really um that was a really enlightening moment because i am used to seeing people talk about latinos in a very um uh homogeneous kind of way and uh when the vote in florida went down and we ended up seeing the demographics of the vote Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, for example, who are a huge part of, of the population in Florida, did not vote for Trump. Like, they, they, they didn't, but it was mostly the Cuban vote. But then when you look at, um, at the rest of the country, you also have to acknowledge that Trump and, and the Republican Party did a really good job at talking to Latino people and bringing them um, to their camp to vote for them. Um, and that I, that's something that I'm still sort of like trying to get around. It, it, it also happened with with black people to a lesser extent, but it, but they also got like a, 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 an increase in in votes from from the Latino community. Um, in terms of of, of the demo, of, of the more specific demographics, I'm still a little bit at a loss with 
open uh, community deep vote for, for Trump. I know that a lot of the um, Venezuelan uh, community um, uh, also were, are very right-wing. Um, so I think I'm still processing some of that, but it is very worrisome that, that we are seeing an increase uh, in votes and in, you know, sympathizing with those ideas uh, from, from the Latino community. Do, do you think the uh, abortion issue is pushing Mexicans into the Republican Party? Hmm. I wouldn't say so. I think that um, immigration is a huge, it's, it's a much bigger issue for, for the Mexican community. And clearly, you know, Trump has done so awful and the Republicans have done so, such, such an awful job um, with immigration and it's been such a threat. I think that in the Mexican community um, and in the Latino community in general, but mostly like Latin American community of immigrants, that immigration would be the top issue. Um, I also I also think that you know Latinos who live in in the, um, in more rural communities, which which is a thing, like as you know people have not been able to afford living in bigger cities, have been moving to other rural areas. There's no reason why they are experiencing the same you know conditions that the rest of the people are experiencing, and a lot of times worse, right? Um, particularly if you're uh, undocumented or, or have family members who are undocumented. So uh, if there's somebody that is promising certain things uh, to, to, to better your life, even if, you know, um, it, it doesn't necessarily uh, come with the follow-up <laughs> it, it, itself. Trump is a salesman, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Rosanna, I'm going to ask you this very specific question. And I'd love to get Peter's uh, uh, thoughts on the issue as well. Uh, part of the thing that holds Democrats back is that Democrats have been fighting among themselves for so long. I know this firsthand because I'm usually fighting with many Democrats. Um, you <laughs> took a big step. I think it was about a week ago. I'm losing track of time, Rosanna, but you did an open letter uh, calling, urging President-elect Joe Biden not repeat, not, N-O-T, not, uh, to put Rahm Emanuel in his cabinet as Transportation Department uh, Secretary. Uh, that's a view that's near and dear to my heart. I'm just speaking for myself. I don't know if everybody uh, uh, on this show today would agree with me uh, or you. Why don't you explain why you did that and why you uh, take, uh, take such a strong stand? And then I'd love to hear what Peter Cunningham has to say. So go ahead, Rosano. So to be honest with you, it's a pretty, it was a pretty visceral response. When I saw the tweet, I was like, oh, no, 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 this cannot, this just absolutely cannot happen. And I half jokingly, you know, tweeted, like, we need a petition. And then I was like, oh, I'll do it. I'll do a petition. I'm trying to get everybody to sign on to it. And I just, I really feel like it is, um, it is outrageous that somebody like Ram Emanuel would end up, that actually, that Ram Emanuel would end up in a Biden's cabinet. And, you know, like we can go down the uh, down the, the line of all of the things that I think that disqualify him. Obviously, the cover up of the La Juan Maison murder needs to be at the top. Somebody that does that in the benefit of their career, to protect their career, does not belong in government. Like that's just, that's just <laughs> that you need to draw the line somewhere. But also, his neoliberal policies also wreck this city. We we lost schools. We lost, lost mental health clinics. 
um, we, I mean, the hideout is at risk, right? <laughs> because of some of those policies that benefit the, the wealthy, that benefit the rich. And, uh, and, and I think uh, here in Chicago, for example, and I, I actually thought that it was important to have a response from Chicago because we experienced um, Ram Emanuel in a very devastating way here. And I know that not everybody agrees and there's people that are gonna talk about the airport and that all of these fantastic things. But for the people who have been fighting for everyday people in Chicago, for the black and brown communities of the city, this is a slap in the face for movements, for people who actually mobilize for Joe Biden to get elected. Um, so I, I think that it was important to take a stand and, and to make sure that other people had a tool to express their, uh, their, their displeasure with, with this nomination. Peter? <laughs> uh, well, th thank you, Maya. Rahm Emanuel. What's yeah. your opinion? <laughs> yeah, thanks. For, thanks for pointing out, Maya, that he's my personal friend. <laughs> uh, uh, I never worked for him, but I did uh, kind of uh, advise him informally now and then, including um, after the Laquan McDonald video came out. Um, there was one particular moment there where I was called in to see if I could help him figure out what to say, which I did. Um, you know, I don't think it's disqualifying. Obviously, I don't think it was handled well at all. Um, but I think that uh, uh, people have to look, be, you know, be viewed in the totality of what they offer. If Joe Biden feels that he'd be better off with someone as savvy and as Washington smart as Rom. He should at least have the opportunity to, to, to do that. I think that if Ram was transportation secretary, I think Chicago would probably be a big winner. Having said all that, you know, I appreciate where you're coming from. A lot of people felt very strongly about him. I don't think he was able to get reelected in 2019 because of the way he handled Laquan McDonald uh, and maybe some other things, but particularly that. So, uh, you know. What does he have to offer? Well, he's very, very savvy about how Washington works. If you read a Wall Street Journal piece today by him, he wrote a piece basically saying, basically laying out a game plan for Biden in the event that there isn't a, um, that uh, we don't win both seats in Georgia and that McConnell is still running the Senate. And, you know, that's a pretty um, uh, troubling scenario and a very, and a pretty likely one that we're not going to have the Senate and Biden's not going to be able to do much of anything legislatively. And uh, so I think what that will be able to do in that scenario, that would be valuable and better than what anybody else could do. I'm sorry, I missed half of that. What'd you say? So what would Rom, if, if that's the case, if, if the Democrats don't win the Senate, what is Rahm Emanuel as a cabinet secretary going to be able to do better than anybody else? Why would well, he? Again, I mean, if, maybe you don't believe it, but he's been in Washington a really long time. He's where he's been in Congress. He's been in the White House, two different administrations. If you don't think that experience is valuable, that's that you're welcome to that opinion. I think it is. Uh, you, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who, uh, with his experience on the Hill and in the White House, so that's that's the that's the argument for it. You know, again, I respect uh, Rosanna's opinion, and I, that that the way he handled Laquan McDonald was disqualifying. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that share that opinion. So, um, I, I'm, 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 you know, I don't I'm not going to challenge it. I just want to make the case that he's uh, extremely experienced at Washington, 
and in a in an environment where uh, Mitch McConnell still controls the Senate, we are going to need some magic to get anything done. And and I, so, why? Why? Chicago would come out way ahead if he was transportation secretary. How? So yeah, why would he? Can you explain a little bit more about that? Like, why do you think Chicago would win if he was transportation secretary? What would he be able to do for us now? He because he would bring a lot of money to Chicago. He would he would bring a lot of. No, yeah, I mean there is going to be an infrastructure bill. I think Republicans will be hard pressed to oppose it. In fact, I think the biggest mistake Trump made was to not pass an infrastructure bill right away because Democrats would have had to vote for it. And he'd be handing out, you know, he'd be cutting ribbons all over America right now. It was the biggest mistake he ever made for a real estate guy like him. I just don't understand how he missed it, but he did. But I think the first thing Biden will do, and I think it'll be a very green one. It may not be exactly the Green New Deal, but I think it'll be a very green infrastructure bill. And I think it'll be great for America. And uh, whoever the transportation secretary is will be giving out a lot of money. And so, you know, that's just something to keep in mind. Mm. So, Rosanna, go ahead, Rosanna. I, I was just thinking about the idea of experience and resume um, and, as, you know, as in contrast with what are the policies that we saw Ram implement in Chicago? Because if, because if we are talking about his resume and about, about his experience, we also have to talk about what his set of politics are. And Ram is mm-hmm. a neoliberal guy. And that's and if he goes anywhere in government, that's what he's going to do. And, and, you, and you might be right that, that some of that, you know, some of the, uh, of the wealth uh, that is assigned to, to the Department of Transportation can come to Chicago. It should come anyways, right? We're one of the major cities in the U.S. But, it, but, then, but, but then if you think about, about how the neoliberal policies that have been implemented over however many decades have left us in the same place, over and over and over, um, I think that we should send somebody that is willing to try something else, right? That is willing to strengthen government and not uh, and not uh, favor private companies and you know um, help other people, you know, profit from government. So, I mean, that's I think that's 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 where we should be going. I, I struggle a lot with. Uh, playing the game as it is, I, I and and this is not this is not coming necessarily from an idealist per, per, idealistic perspective. It's about actual good government and practicing good government and 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 a lot of what we see and and that I am struggling with in city council right now is that the way that the game is is established is just so bad, you know. And and we need to be sending people that are willing to try other things and to challenge and to be like, no, 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 we can't do things like this. This is not good government. This, like, we cannot continue stretching in this way, right? Because because it has been very harmful for, for us and for our community. So I think that those things need to be challenged, like sending somebody that goes in there and just knows to play the game. It, that is a, a way of, of looking at things, but that is what we have been doing. Like that is, that's all we have been doing. Yeah. <laughs> that sort of like can can do the bidding and can like speak the language of the of the of the right and and and, and at some point I think that we need to we need to take a, a hard look at what we're doing and really make an honest effort to change it because it doesn't work. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that you know there's so many 
issues here in Illinois and nationally that are not getting addressed. And mm -hmm. the, the folks who have been running the country, running the city for a long time, weren't able to address them here at home. Look at the affordable housing issue. I think the, the Paul said has, the DePaul uh, Housing Center has said we're 120,000 units short of affordable housing. And I think I read somewhere that there's 10 or 11 new housing, affordable housing proposals, including one in your award. So kudos to you. But that's the only one I think on the entire north side, which is where we really need affordable housing. And this goes back to what I was saying before about narrative. We don't have a narrative to support a serious commitment to affordable housing. Instead, we have a narrative that basically says, you know, that that's going to bring poor people in my neighborhood and it's going to lower my property values and it's going to create crime. That's the narrative about affordable housing, unfortunately, rather than, no, economic integration is actually a good thing. You should want it. You should want families in your communities. I live in Logan Square. Around here, everybody's building these little yuppie one, one bedroom apartments. I mean, why do we let that happen? I don't know. It's, 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 it's wrong. We shouldn't let that happen, yet we do. So there's so many things that, you know, I, I think that's why the fair tax went down. It went down because they don't trust Springfield to do the right thing. And because Springfield got us into this situation over 30 years. It went down for other reasons also, but, uh, you know. So. But you're talking about narrative. I think that that is a really important part of this because you create narratives, right? Like if you invest in narrative, you can create whatever narrative you want. And right. rich people actually went and said <laughs> and, and convinced people to vote against their own interests, against the possibility of being able to tax the rich. And now we're city council trying to, to figure out how to tax this five of us in city council and a few more that are trying to figure out how to tax the rich. And it's really complicated when, you know, the constitution says that we can't, right? So the rich did an incredible job. Like Ken Griffin, did, they did an incredible job, like piling up money to be able to put that message out, right? And, um, and I think that that is part of the narrative. We have to choose what are the narratives that we want to put out there. And I think that we can push uh, the Democrats way harder in terms of, of what we should be saying. And I say this as a theater artist that has spent most of her life actually doing narrative and telling stories of right. people. There's, right. there's, there's so much that we could be saying. It should have been a no-brainer. It should have been a no-brainer, the fair tax. Right, and it's an actually, it's an interesting example, and I'd love to also hear your thoughts about, like, the, yeah, like, the messaging and where things went wrong, because I thought it was, like, a great example of something that it's an issue that requires voter education. Like, people just don't know, most people don't even know how the state taxes income. So you're starting out from a place where, like, you know, unlike a candidate who can have a prior record, who can be a celebrity, who can have a persona that people know something about, who people see on TV, this is like an issue. And the fundamental thing about the issue is that it's not like abortion or death penalty. You know, it's not something that everyone has an opinion on when they're 14, by the time they're 14. This is like something that's new. It requires educating people about what the thing is before you even try to convince them about the change you want to make. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's kind of interesting because I feel like it didn't take a whole lot, like a whole lot of effort for like Ken Griffin, basically, and the, and the opposition to this thing to get their point across. I mean, I, I moved to a new home um, over the summer and it, I got mail from the former 
resident for like months afterwards. And it was interesting because the mail that came to my name regarding the fair tax, I get like one or two mailers and it was like, you know, vote for the fair tax. It'll be better for everyone and blah, blah, blah. But the mail about the fair tax that came to the name of the of the previous resident who was I don't know if she was a registered Democrat or what the issue was, but I know she's like kind of religious. Um, so maybe she was a Republican, but woman in her th- white woman in her 30s or maybe 40s. She there was a mailer every day that was being sent to her that was like an anti fair tax thing. And these things, I mean, I'm sure some consultant made like millions of dollars in fees for like the around the messaging around this thing but it was literally just like a photoshop thing with like a stock photo image of a person and basically the message was if you vote for the fair tax they'll raise your taxes next that's all they needed to say like your taxes will go up next so i just i i don't understand how is it possible that the that like the progressive side of our community or you know pritzker and the rest of everyone else who was in support of the fair tax seem to have fucked up so badly on the messaging I mean, you I, know go ahead, go ahead. so chicago did pretty well uh, on the fair tax right in, in the city of chicago we actually um we did a, a pretty good job like my ward for example like we do a lot of education we do a lot of tabling um and we got like 70 something percent like 72 percent we won the, the first tax one in my ward and the 35th and wherever like we went out and we talked to people and we educated people like that happened but that's when you have to figure out where your commitment commitments lie right like the democratic party could have actually <laughs> embraced that and like go hard you know um and so so we could have had a lot more research and a lot more dedication um to that in the rest of illinois but that didn't necessarily happen and of course they you know the rich had so much more resources and and they were hammering that message of we're going to raise your taxes um i mean the truth is we had as much money in favor of the fair tax as against the fair tax right we had all all jb's money and they had all of ken griffin's money um i think the problem was uh, you know, their message was so much easier. Don't trust Springfield. And mm-hmm. our message, frankly, it, it, it felt a little non-credible um, that 97% of the state wouldn't have to pay for it. Trust me, trust me, trust me. And I just think that also KB was kind of the wrong messenger for it. You know, he's a billionaire himself. I think that it, it, it would have been better. And um, Juliana Stratton almost got to it at, toward the end, but it was too late. If they had said, you know what? We have a lot of financial problems in this state. They go way back, long before I was the governor. Um, and one way or another, we're going to have to raise taxes on you to solve it. Um, we're going to have to. So my question is, do you want to have? Do you want to raise taxes on all people or just on the people who can pay the most? I think that would have been a more honest message. And it's true because they're going to have to raise taxes in Springfield. He, he may he may borrow his way out of it for another year. But at some point, he's going to have to. So I think you had a message problem, you had a messenger problem, and again, you got a, his, a history in Springfield of note of low trust. And you know, and it. By the way, it's just always easier to be against taxes than for it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter. Okay. Well, as long as we're talking about narratives, I'd love to get uh, your thought on this narrative. Then here was on us, and one of the narratives that Joe Biden put forth uh, is that. There is uh, there are no blue states or no red states or no. It's just the United States. He he literally stole that from Barack Obama. He figured, well, it worked for Barack Obama. I'm gonna try it out. Uh, 
Now, he put that out there. We can work together. The Republicans that want to work with me. I know that that spirit of bipartisanship exists. Uh, he, he, he put that out there and gave folks the notion that he was truly trying to be a president for all the people. So, Peter, I've been watching uh, in the aftermath as all the MAGA nation has united around the, the notion that somehow or other Democrats stole this election from Donald John Trump. I can't find every now and then a Republican crawls out from under some rock, gives some feeble little comment. Well, you know, maybe these are exaggerated. Bill Barr just now today. Yeah, Will Bar- William Barr, because there was nothing for the nothing. There was nothing. I, I haven't seen William Barr saying cease and desist, Donald John Trump, with your lawsuits. Donald Trump's going down to uh, Georgia. He's going to rip Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, say he hasn't come out strong enough to to defeat the commies and the radical thugs. So what I'm saying to you, Peter, do you think a successful narrative can be constructed? that could work over the next couple of years with Joe Biden, in which you talk about uniting a country that seems so divided right now with one half utterly uninterested, that would be the Republican half, uh, in compromising with the other. What's your thoughts on that narrative? And then I'll get Rosanna's thoughts. Go ahead. I, I do think it's possible. It's the one I talked about. I think that we need to um, get back to bread and butter issues, and we need to convince people that that's what we care about the most. That all things begin by providing a ladder into the middle class for those who are poor, and by securing, providing security for those who are in the middle class already. And, um, you know, Joe Biden is maybe uniquely equipped to carry that message better than Barack Obama could, better than Bill Clinton could, although Clinton should have been able to carry it. Um, and that he did. I mean, he, he really was a poor kid who made his way up the ladder to his credit. But uh, I think it's possible to do that. Um, is it are we a divided country? Absolutely. We're a divided country. So I don't have unreal, naive expectations that somehow everyone's going to sit around and sing Kumbaya. But I believe that, you know, we're about a third, a third, a third Democrats, Republicans and independents, maybe Republicans a little bit less. Democrats a little more, um, and I think the the you know the independents are, are are the biggest single group. So there's a lot of people there um, who are open to a a message like that. Whether they can, and, and and my strategy, so to speak, would be to say let's use this time right now, especially if we don't control the Senate, uh, not to keep trying to push bills that will never get passed. We should push some of them so that we get them on the record as having voted against them. But let's use this time to actually lay the groundwork for both consolidating power in 2022 and creating the opportunity to really do big change when we have control of both houses of Congress. If we don't have control of both houses of Congress, I think we'll, we just won't get that much done. Rosanna? Um, narrative. I, I mean, yeah, I think that, uh, that, that you can definitely develop narrative, uh, around it that is going to be about taking care of people, right? About taking care of me. It's just like, you know, Peter was saying at the beginning, the bread and butter issues, you need to hammer that, but also it, you need to see practice, right? Like you need to see 
some concrete effort in order to be able to better the lives of people. Otherwise, I don't really know how you can change anybody from from acting or thinking the way that they are, right? Like the message of Donald Trump was just populist, like right-wing populism. And, and, and you need to be able to counter that with very concrete things that people need. So I think that the narrative has a lot to do with that, with, with the bread and water issues. Um, and I, I like to think a lot about, about our race here in the world. It's, it's very local, right? But I do think that there are ways in which, um, it, 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 which it, it relates to, to the national uh, picture because we said we lost, uh, we, need, we need to make sure that, that we can get reelected, right? But when, when Tim Megan, who ran before me, lost the election, what we did is that we organized and we started talking about the issues that were relevant to our community. We started going and knocking on doors and talking about immigration and, you know, the things that we could do around immigration and housing, which was very important for people in our community and education. And we just started talking to people all the time. For those four years, people had got sick of us. They knew who we were <laughs> and, and they knew what we were about. And we, we were able to get that message across. Uh, of course, you know, I was running against uh, a, a, an institution in, in Chicago. Um, so it was a hard fight regardless because we didn't have any money. But, but we did talk about the bread and butter issues for our community for a very long time, right? So I, I do think that the narrative has a lot to do with what are the needs of the people. This was your one of your when you're saying we you mean like 33rd ward working families right? We might be yeah because when when we lost the the the, the election with him, um, 17 votes to a runoff, uh, we decided to start the IPO and we funded 33rd ward working families with the hope that we would be able to organize and then run again at some point. And you guys never received any kind of money from like me from democratic kind of establishment, like from, so basically you guys did all of this through a grassroots effort. What I'm wondering is like, do you see the democratic party like really investing in, in grassroots organizing uh, that can win democratic seats in places maybe that have a lot of, you know, even in rural areas where people are just like really fed up and demoralized and have been disengaged from politics. Like, do you think that the demo after this election, the Democratic Party is going to like really put some resources behind grassroots work like we're seeing in Georgia with Stacey Abrams, that kind of stuff? Or are they going to keep spending money on moderate candidates to try to, you know, make sure that like the swing, the, the swing voter stays in our corner? So at this moment, I see no um, signals of the leadership of the Democratic Party wanting to go that route. I think that that is the way to go. <laughs> I think um, I, I think that we should be investing, in, and it has been demonstrated, right, that grassroots candidates can win elections. Um, and but I don't see any signs that that the leadership of the Democratic Party is interested in that. But I what do <laughs> Why is that, Peter? Uh, I think they think that the the seats they need to stay in power are in, uh, you know, red areas. But and you know that's what happened in 2018, right? They picked up 40 seats in red areas. So that's the theory of action at the moment. It may not be the only theory of action, but you know. I mean, why would they invest in Chicago, right? They're going to win Chicago no matter what. Why would they invest in New York? 
they're going to win New York, but they, they they need upstate New York. They need seats in New York. They lost a um, they lost a house seat in Staten Island. So uh, I mean, they absolutely should invest. I'm a message guy, right? I always think we lose because of field, even though sometimes it's because of message. But I think that we, you know, I think that um, the fair tax campaign, for example, didn't have a very good field operation. Uh, and you just confirmed it for me, uh, but talking about the mail that you were getting. So uh, I'm all for investing in in field and investing it. I, I, I read a really um, troubling story about Florida uh, about a month before the election about how Trump, uh, how the Republicans had such a robust field operation oh, yeah. in Florida starting in June. And, and Biden's people barely were even there until about October 1st. So it's like, that's just to me, that is like slitting your own wrist. So, you know, we should invest. I mean, there's no question we should invest. I mean, we had um, we spent a lot of money this year trying to pick up Senate seats, and that investment didn't really pay off. Uh, right? I mean, so much money for Jamie Harrison, and so much money for Teresa Greenfield in Iowa. So much money for Cal Cunningham, my my namesake in uh, North Carolina, and. Uh, uh, what's the name up in um, Maine? Susan Collins. Well, the challenger to Susan Collins. No, no, uh, to oh, Sarah. Uh, um, Gideon. 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 Yeah. I mean, so that was an awful lot of money. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they should invest. And, you know, uh, yeah, looking... and it paid off in Georgia. So we have a we have a model here. It worked. Okay, so do it again. Uh, I'm listening to your conversation here. What you guys are saying, and I'm 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 taking it to local. Uh, and I'll start with you, uh, Rosanna, on this one. He's trying um, to find something we can disagree about, Rosanna. Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> I can find him. Well, we already discovered that with Rom. Uh, yeah, there you go. Please, we can come back please. to that one if you want. No, um, right. But uh, <laughs> so I've heard this. You know, a lot of people come on my show who are trying to win a Rosanna uh, on platforms that are not that different from yours in areas uh, that are red, okay? And so I, they definitely, I'd give them a platform. Uh, and most of them lose. And then they come back on the show and they're really irritated or mad at the Democratic Party. And in part, it's because when it comes to a primary, the Democratic Party rips them and says, you can't possibly win. This person can't, I've heard this line, Rosanna, from about so many people come on my show. He can't possibly win. He's too left. He's just, you know, a Bernie Sanders type, a socialist. He can't win. And so it seems like the Democratic Party, and this is an age-old story in the city of Chicago, is that fight with its, like its most idealistic people. You know, like they wouldn't let they had this rule that if you were an operative for a challenger in a congressional race, uh, Nancy Pelosi and the, the National Democrats weren't going to hire you. I'm like, what are you guys trying to like destroy idealism and m- make people not want to go with or follow their heart? Maybe there's some smart young people who are working against, you know, the Lipinskis of the world that you might want to recruit uh, once you win. So I want you to to talk about the Rosetta because you ran against the Mel's. You know what it's like to go up against powerful Democrats. 
it does the Democratic Party, is it hurting itself by beating the hell out of everyone who dares to challenge an incumbent? Go ahead. I mean, I, I actually think that they are hurting themselves. We have seen the kind of excitement um, that, that the Bernie Sanders campaign, for example, produced, right? Uh, we have seen the excitement that, that has been brought to people when they are able to believe that we can have a different government, that we can actually meet our, our basic needs, right? And, and at this point, we're not even, I mean, I don't even think that that's left. That, that should be censored. <laughs> We're talking about basics. We're talking about healthcare. Um, so the idea that that is far left is also like mind blowing to me. But in, in my particular case, um, we didn't. We never asked for permission to do this, and and I ran as an independent too. Like I wasn't even concerned with like, because I knew that they were gonna say I you're not going to win. Like, why, why do you think you're going to win? But we knew that it was possible to win because we had tried it before, because we tried Tim Megan and we got 17 votes away from a runoff and we had nothing. When we ran Tim Megan, we, we had like, I, I mean, we didn't even have like a big operation, right? Like we didn't have any money. Um, none of us had ever run an electoral campaign ever. We were all activists. We did not know what electoral campaign or electoral politics for that matter was. We didn't know the game and we got really close. So we figured that we were going to do what we do, which is organize. And that's the way that we were able to win our seat four years later. Um, so for me, it, I, I am not sure if I was convinced that we were going to win. I, I, probably, I, we, we didn't know that we were going to win, but we fought for that seat with, with all the force that we had, right? Like we, we, we fought for that seat, um, with, with all our might, and, um, and we won by 13 votes. So for 13 doors, you know, or like, you know. 13 phone calls uh, through phone banking that, that gave us that victory. Uh, but the Mel family um, uh, had more than double the money that, that we had, right? Um, so it just, it took a lot of work, but I, I am never discouraged <laughs> by hard work. And also I think I, think I, I, I have a, a, a very particular upbringing and a very particular background. I am from a colony of the United States where nothing ever seems possible and somehow we make do, like we make things happen. Um, so so I, I, I just roll with that, <laughs> I guess. And, and, and the people that are around me had enough trust in me and, and believe in me enough that they decided to invest their time and energy in making it happen. Peter, do you think the Democrats are too hard on their own? Of course, always. But, you know, I mean, I think that, uh, first of all, I think Rosanna's victory in Chicago was great. I think it, it was part of a uh, a year in which a lot of kind of old school Democrats got dumped. Uh, I worked for, I mean, Bill Daley wasn't a sitting, a sitting elected official, but I worked for Bill's campaign. He's an old friend. Uh, and, you know, he was a Daley. Obviously, he, could, he didn't win. Pat O'Connor got unseated. Um, Joe Moore, who I think once was a reformer, right? Or once was a, uh, once was a progressive, sorry. A lefty. Uh, yeah, once was a lefty. He got pushed out. And Rosanna, of course, unseated Deb Mel. Uh, there's probably a couple of other examples. I don't, I don't. Daniel Lafada. Um, yeah, yeah. Danny Beat. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
So, so, oh, and I mean, Laurie, Laurie's election was was that as well. She was the outsider, right, running against Bill and Tony and Burke and everybody. So, so, so that's that that kind of def, what defined the tone of the 2019 election in Chicago. I, I mean, I just think that you know, all politics is local, and um, uh, what happened in. Uh, in, in Staten Island is one thing. What happened in Western Pennsylvania and Connor Lamb, he got reelected, but he was complaining about Democrats being against fracking because fracking is a big dish, issue for him. Uh, you know, you look here, Lauren Underwood almost got unseated. I'm glad she didn't. So that was great by a bonehead, um, you know, was a candidate. You know, it's it's it. This is the challenge of being a Democrat. This is why I keep coming back to the bread and butter issues. If if we can at least agree on the bread and butter issues, unite around that message, and then we can agree to disagree a little bit on how far to go with, you know, whether it's Green New Deal or a green infrastructure bill. I'm for the Green New Deal. Joe says he's not for it because he's got a, a focus group or a poll that tells him it doesn't poll that well in the swing states. That's the deal, right? I mean, let's let's not kid each other. And uh, you know, if, if 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 Republicans can weaponize the word socialism and knock us out of a few seats, then we got to be mindful of that. We just got to think about it. Doesn't mean we should discourage, you know, uh, some kind of a solution around student debt. Uh, which, you know, I guess that's socialism. I'm not sure. It doesn't mean we should discourage an honest conversation about whether Medicare for all is better than, you know, public option. Uh, I'm for public option because I don't think America's ready for Medicare for all because as soon as they find out they lose their private insurance, then they're against it. <laughs> but they're for it until they find that out. So it's like people don't quite know what it means. Yeah. So it, it, it's just pure politics, really. I'm just, I, I just don't want to lose. I want to consolidate power. And then I think we can do more things and we can do a lot of things that Rosanna wants to do, that AOC wants to do. She's the Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez of New York. Right now. <laughs> I know that. Let's take a few questions from our audience. It seems like there's quite a few people watching and people have been really active in the uh, chat box. So I appreciate that. So again, if you're watching and you have a question on the, if you hover your mouse over the screen in the top right corner, there's a little speech bubble and that's, that opens up the chat so you can ask your questions. So actually this, um, this first question is from, John Knox, and it's kind of relevant to what we were just talking about. John says, I heard an insightful post-election analysis that said the Democrats don't have to win in places like downstate Illinois, but they have to cut the margins. They have to offer something like 35 to 45 percent. What do you think the left wing of the party could offer to build a base in the rural, white, downstate portions of the state? And I'd even expand that with like, you know, in general, if that if that base is 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 captivated by the right wing populism of Trump and, you know, swayed by Republican messaging that Democrats are socialists, how do you come in there with an actual socialist message and kind of like get the boogeyman out from under the bed and and win people over? So let me show you one of the most socialistic areas of American public policy. It's called farm farming, agriculture, mm -hmm. right? The whole, the, by the, the whole hag industry was started with the Homestead Act. We have land-grant colleges. We have the Department of Agriculture. We have agricultural extension agents. We have crop supports. That whole industry is supported there, and yet we couldn't save the family farm. I mean, I was just in upstate New York where my family lives, very rural area, 
we went to the Adirondacks, which is like a state, you know, mountain range park, tiny, tiny kind of inhabited communities. Most of it is all farming around there. People are living on government cheese. People yeah. are living on wealth, on, on subsidies for farming, basically. But everyone's got giant Trump signs, Confederate flags, like, yeah. you know, like the. Well, I, I don't think that those people you can change people's minds like i'm kind of like much more in the turnout camp but per this person's question per john's question like how can you build a base in an area like that or do you, is it not worth the time or effort i mean just a quick answer and then i'd love to hear what Rosanna has to say so i i would i would focus on ag policy and i would focus on um uh, green energy jobs and mm -hmm. you know how many jobs there are in the coal coal mining industry in illinois right now 2,000. There are 2,000 jobs left in that industry. I read this in the Tribune about two months ago. And, and we, could, we could just pay those people to stop working and provide green jobs, which we have downstate. We have the biggest windmill farm in America, I think, downstate. So those are some ideas. Go ahead, Rosanna. Yeah, I agree with you, Peter, actually. Uh, I was just saying to Mike oh, Davis the other day, talking about this, this same thing, right, about the need for jobs. Um, uh, in the face of the decimation of, of mining. Um, and and yes, agricultural work. I think that you need to figure out what people need. It's actually not rocket science. Maybe and drug it, treatment? Drug treatment? Yeah. What's that? Drug treatment. <laughs> right, right, right. Seriously. Um, so so you, you need to figure out what are the things that people need and, and then make sure that you are being able to provide the services and the resources for people to be able to meet those needs, right? And, and do it with messaging. Um, show them that you care about them. And I think that that is something that we just don't have in this system, right? Is the idea that you would just, are you guys basically saying that we just need to convince those folks that they're already living socialism? So like it's not scary and foreign like they're it's just already their reality. No, I wouldn't say that. You know, <laughs> I was involved with a uh, I'm involved with a group called Rough Belt Rising that does a lot of message research around the Midwest. And um, believe it or not, despite the fact that as you say they're living on government cheese and they're getting crop supports and they have social security and if they're older they have free government health care and if they're poor they have government health care and they all have free public schools. Despite all that. They don't like handouts. <laughs> so, handouts is un-American. So, you know, I, I think it's, I, I, I don't want to diminish the challenge here. I think it's a challenge, but I think that you can win them over, as Rosanna was saying, by connecting with them and what they're doing with every day and letting them know that you hear them and you understand them. One of the biggest lessons I've ever learned about politics is that you don't always have to tell everybody what they want to hear but you have to let them know that you heard them. And if you go and do a, a town hall in rural uh, Illinois, and if you stand up there and lecture them about their life and how, you know, whatever, the jobs are in the city, obviously they're gonna not going to like you. But if you go there and you just listen to them and then repeat back to them what they said to you, they'll at least feel they were heard. And that's a, that's a, that's a, a skill that a lot of politicians don't have. <laughs> Ben, did you have something? No, is there another question? Yeah, there's other questions. Um, Go ahead. I didn't know if you had something else. Um, okay, so let's see. So 
Mike uh, Mike Fragasi is asking or stating stating uh, that centrist Democrats don't message well on the bread and butter stuff compared to DSA, and they don't even seem interested. Uh, you know, very often candidates are like, "Well, just read our platform; you'll see all, we, all this progressive stuff that we're pushing for." Um, so Mike's question is: uh, Is that impression correct that the that the kind of centrist part of the party isn't really putting in an effort to message better? Uh, or is he missing some good centrist messaging out there? I'm guessing this is for me, Rosanna. What's <laughs> <laughs> uh, up with the centrist messaging? There's no question they don't message it well. And I think that, that's been our problem. And I also think that, um, you know, a message only matter, only counts if it comes from the right messenger. And as I said before, I think that we are guilty of having um, become elitists in a lot of ways. Um, you know, look, I'm, I, I, I work for Barack Obama. I love him. But, you know, what he projected, the way he, I, I, I think he had trouble uh, connecting on that level uh, with um, blue collar guys and all that kind of thing. And blue collar workers of all colors, not just white and not just talking about white rural people. Um, and I think that... Uh, and I, I just think that's the challenge for us is we got to learn to do it again. I'm not sure that uh, Democratic Socialists of America do it much better, uh, but maybe Rosanna thinks they do, that, which is fine. I, I, I appreciate that. I just think we all ought to do it. We all ought to get better at it. And if DSA is better at it, then we should do what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, DSA is associated with, 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 again, with handouts and with, you know, free everything and with, uh, you know, uh, defund police, whether that polls well or doesn't poll well, or whether that's true is another story. You and I both believe it's much more about bread and butter issues, which I think it is. So our challenge is, is to really get behind a solid message around bread and butter issues. And I think we'd all be better off. But, but I think it's also about educating. And I think it's also about bringing into the conversation things that, uh, that, that get you know, inaccessible to people because there are those fears. And I think that when we talk about narrative, it's also our responsibility to bring some of those things into the narrative so that so that they can become more accessible to people. One thing that I worry a lot sometimes about the Democratic Party, and I saw it in some of the debates, um, is the, the not challenging the right enough in a lot of their messaging that is racist and that is even fascist, you know, like the, the center sort of gets like in this space where they don't want to, you know, touch that too much so that, so that they don't get into a, 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 a landscape where they become offensive to some of those potential voters. And it, and it becomes like a, you know, like, like this fear of actually saying the right thing. And I think that I worry a lot about that. And I think that the center needs to do a lot better with it because I think there are things that are just unacceptable and that need to be called out. Um, but also I, I think that it is our responsibility to bring a lot of these other issues. And I have been very unapologetic, for example, in my, um, in my stances with defund and trying, like really trying hard to explain to people what is it that we mean when we say that. Um, what are the things that we actually feel like we need to fund? What is the vision for safety? Why do we only talk about police when we talk about safety? We need an actual um, plan for holistic community safety that includes taking care of people underneath, right? Um, so I, I do think that we need to dare to, to talk about certain things.
committed to explaining what is it that we mean so that we can make those messages accessible as well. Yeah, actually, so um, Mike Girardi, Ben, our friend Mike Girardi uh, is in the chat bringing up this exact same um, exact same issue. Uh, Mike's saying, why are we using the term socialism to describe something that does not involve workers owning the means of production and the abolition of private ownership of, of, of the means of production of private property? Why do we not just call Scandinavian-style redistributive economics social democracy? Like, why, basically, why is the conversation like, oh, we've got, like, what we usually do, or, like, we've got socialism? And I actually really, I think this is, like, a really great point, and maybe this also links back to the conversation about the Latino vote, which is that, I mean... So I'm from like a family, I'm, I'm I was born in Russia, I'm from a family of Russian immigrants. We, most of my family's friends are all other Russian immigrants. These are people who grew up under socialism. These are people who got like fabulous public education. These are people whose families, I mean, within one generation, people went from like being illiterate and living without any modern conveniences and villages to being like putting the first human being in space. Like people because of socialism, essentially, like people were able to be educated, became literate, the country became industrialized, etc. So whenever I'm talking to like, I mean, so in my family, like people are like, very much skeptical of like American kind of socialist, and they talk about how everything was crappy in the Soviet Union. And we just wanted to get to America so that we could buy whatever kind of jeans we want and own a house, etc, etc. But, but so so when they hear socialism, they think about like, well, we don't want like another Soviet Union. And I imagine for a lot of like Latino immigrants from countries where there have been like either left wing dictatorships or other kind of, um, le- you know, not very rosy uh, versions of socialism, people are really scared of this term. But I found that like, whenever I say to those immig- like kind of right wing immigrants who grew up from the under the benefits of socialism, whenever I say, oh no, like the socialists in this country are just trying to make this place more like Germany. Like, you know, like this is not gonna become the Soviet Union. People are just trying to make this more like Germany. It's like, it completely diffuses all of their tension about this issue because there's like a general recognition that, okay, like, I mean, we know it's probably not the case that everything's perfect in, 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 countries in Europe where there's social democracy, but in general, people have a much more favorable opinion of like Sweden and German Germany than they do of Cuba and the Soviet Union. So is that what really should, should we really be doing that? Is just like educating people about socialism from the standpoint of, of social democracy. I'd like to hear Rosanna's uh, answer to that first and then Peter, but before I do, I just gotta say Michael Girardi, uh, is a great rocker, Peter Cunningham. This dude brings it. Uh, he's a great guitar player, and he's got some stinging lyrics. So Michael Girardi, is, he's a good friend of my show. He, we play his music all the time. I want to just give a shout-out to the great... Peter of Chicago. Uh, Peter, you would love his music, man. He brings it on that guitar. Anyway, Rosanna, go ahead. No, I mean, I agree that what we're asking for right now, the the people who are calling themselves socialists, is actually just basic, you know, like, well, welfare for for everybody. Um, So, I mean, I think that there's a point in talking about social democracy. In my particular case, I am a socialist. 
So when I when I talk about about what we want to see, we definitely want worker power. We we want workers to have uh, to be able to own the means of production in a, at some point and have democracy and decide over you know how how they want to to produce and 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 and, and a say about their labor. Um, I, I I find it interesting that the idea of socialism has captivated so many young people, particularly that are ready to imagine a world that is different from what we have, away from you know the capitalist economy, um, and that that creates the possibility for this incredibly huge wealth gap um, that leaves people you know not being able to afford rent and people like with with ridiculous amounts of money that they will never be able to use in their lifetime. Um, so I think that that is an interesting perspective. And, and I think that maybe we could do a better job at like explaining that better. In my particular case, I see it as like a, a journey, right? A path to an actual different society that we want to build. Peter, is, is socialism just the third rail? <laughs> I, you know, I think it's a word that a lot of people don't understand um, and misinterpret and also have negative associations with. So uh, it's not a word that I would choose to describe uh, the robust safety net that I think we need uh, or the, you know, I often say that the safety net should be a springboard into the middle class, not a trap, not a not a welfare trap, so to speak, but a springboard into the middle class, um, you know, uh, Entrepreneurship is a good example, where if we made if we made it a little a little less risky to open a new business, I think we'd see a lot more entrepreneurs starting businesses, especially entrepreneurs of color, entrepreneurs of uh, women, entrepreneurs and rural entrepreneurs. And so you need a healthy safety net to do that, and that's what I think they have in Europe. They have a, a, a very robust safety net. If you're unemployed, you're not going to starve. If you're, uh, if you have to take care of a child or take care of an elder, elderly parent or a sick member of your family, you're, you're not going to lose your job. You're not going to starve. If you're dealing with COVID like they are now, they take care of you. And I think that's a legitimate case. And if there's a, you know, I mean, we've allowed the market to dictate the cost of higher education. And the market hasn't worked. And the market doesn't really solve a lot of social problems. It doesn't keep healthcare costs down. It doesn't uh, ensure that everybody's covered. It doesn't cover pre-existing conditions. So, you know, I'm still a capitalist, but I'm for regulated capitalism. You know, I, I believe that we need a very active government and private sector partnership to do most things. And that gets to the real narrative about America that I think is false. The Republicans have this narrative about rugged individualism instead of the wagon trains that settled there. <laughs> they have this narrative about, you know, uh, free market capitalism will solve, will, will, will lift all boats. No, it doesn't. It consolidates wealth. They have a narrative about trickle-down economics. It's actually trickle-up economics. Poor people pay rent, they buy food, they buy clothes, the money goes up into the retailers and the grocery stores and then into the professional class and then it all ends up on Wall Street where they hoard the money. So we have a trickle-up economy. So there's a lot of lies there. And then go back to a point that I think you made before, Rosanna, or maybe it was a question. You know, we don't do a good enough job of calling out Republicans for their lies and for their false narratives. And, uh, you know, 
part of ours is to, uh, you, you know, Reagan came up with these narratives and he was a gifted communicator and we've been dealing with it for 40 years. Yeah. Our job right now is to change it. I, I got to tell you, I agree with everything. That was a great riff, but part of the problem is the Democrats are afraid of what they believe in. And I've been seeing it for so long. I just saw it in the last debates. Like the, they, uh, when uh, old boy Pence would say, she's, she's for the Green New Deal. And then uh, Kamala Harris would shake her head like, oh, there he goes again. I'm not for the Green New Deal. And then uh, and then um, Trump would go, it's socialized medicine. And Biden, Biden would be like, no, I'm not for socialized medicine. I'm like, what do you stand for? I knew I was going to vote for Biden. There was no doubt in my mind I was going to vote for Biden. But I, I, couldn't bear, I couldn't bear to watch it. It goes 1988. That's how Michael Dukakis. This is way before Rosanna or Maya's time. I might as well be talking about dinosaurs for these guys. But hey, Michael Dukakis, they go, Oh, are you a member? You're a card carrying member of the ACLU. And he was like, No, I'm not. Stand up for what you believe, Peter. If you believe it, say it. And Democrats always run away from it. And, they, and it's, I hear Democrats. More than anybody else talk about elites. They're always like, we talk come off what? like elites. Talk about the deleted tweets. Huh? The deleted tweets. Oh, okay. The deleted tweets. <laughs> we might as well close with it. We have any more great questions from the audience? Or bring, yeah, bring it to, well, we yeah, have the deleted tweets, man. I'm, I, there you go, Peter. I don't know. You probably don't know what I'm talking about. No, I have no idea what you're talking She's an uh, economist. That yeah, 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 I know her. He make she wants to make her the director of the OMB. So she tweets. So everybody tweets except for me. Maya's a huge tweeter. Rosanna Rodriguez is a huge tweeter. Yeah. I don't know if you tweet. I was like, where is this tweet? What is this tweet from? <laughs> what is Ben doing? <laughs> I, yeah, I don't tweet. So near a tandem, they're like, She'd been tweeting, and it's the most mild, innocuous tweets, Peter Cunningham, in the world. It's like, I don't like Trump-type tweets, and all these Republicans are lackeys. I mean, it's like, and the, and the Republicans are like, oh, my God, we're so outraged. We cannot allow her to be being partisan. They're accusing her of being partisan. Yeah. In Washington. And she deletes her tweets. You ever see Trump delete a tweet? Like, massive? Okay, every now and then, he says something so racist, he has to delete it. But they just deleted, like, a thousand tweets. Peter, Democrats are so afraid. They're so afraid. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if this can become a question, I guess I would say, like, what are they? What are they going to do when in four years, when there's not like a giant anti-Trump wave and a pandemic that's helping people, more people vote because people can vote by mail. By mail, like when you can't count on the outrage vote and the kind of like anti-something vote, how are you going to mobilize people? If if we've got people that are at the tippy top of our party who are like deleting mild tweets. Like, <laughs> I think we're going to do a lot of things that Rosanna wants to do, but we're not going to call it socialism. That's how you're going to do it. Can I just say to what you were saying, Peter, in terms of like, I'm a capitalist and it should be like Europe and, you know, they have a safety net and we yeah. can have more entrepreneurs. I, that is all fine. The problem is that capitalism doesn't like that. <laughs> And those systems are under attack all the time. And you have people, I lived in England for a year. That I went to do my master's in England, in Manchester. And the time that I was in England, people from the NHS were on strike, like, a lot. <laughs> 
cannot take for granted in a capitalist system when you're able to build it here in the U.S. We're like nowhere near, right? But um, but I, I think that it is it is contradictory, right? And uh, with 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 the capitalism that we see and how. If someone asks you, are you flat out against capitalism? Would you say you oh, are? Oh, yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> really? Nice. I like that. All right. Get, <laughs> you know get, get, her get her elected in Wisconsin. Go ahead and do it, man. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, you know, uh, but, you know, kudos to you. You got elected in the 33rd Ward. So it's, it's a good place to start a movement. It's a good place as any. <laughs> You know, actually, got elected in the South Bronx. I'm from the Bronx, so I'm proud, I'm proud that uh, you know she represents uh, part of my home borough. And actually, the, uh, the area of the Bronx where I'm from just unseated a 33 year old, 33 year uh, an Elliot Engel for Jamal Bowman. So you know, uh, all good. I mean, I'm really happy that that the Democratic Party is being is being pulled. Uh, back to the left, because I think that there's a lot of good ideas over there. There's a lot of energies, energy over there. Um, but, you know, I still believe that we need a, a unifying narrative around uh, restoring the middle class. And that's the better one to me than socialism. That's just my opinion. I think I, I think socialism uh, can 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 sell in some places. I don't think it can sell in some and in other places. I don't think it will sell. And I'm worried about losing power. You know, we're six or seven votes away from losing the House. Wow. And we haven't won back the Senate. And there's no guarantee of the White House, obviously, forever. So that's so not anything without those things. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Rosanna. No, that's fine. So you don't think that we could create an enough good narrative to sell socialist ideas? <laughs> I mean, maybe I, I just don't think so. But I, I think we can sell the ideas. I don't think we can sell it packaged and socially. The, the label. You want to take the label off. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, it's not, a, it, again, it's not my label. My label is it, it's the middle class. Middle class okay. promise. The great American middle class promise. <laughs> I think we could sell that everywhere. And the truth is, a lot of it will be very, it'll look a lot like European socialism because it'll have a really robust safety net. It'll have strong wages. You know, a whole other conversation. I don't know how, I think we're out of time, right? I don't know when this thing ends. <laughs> What's that? We've got like five more minutes. You know, um, it's interesting. The, the whole ballot initiatives was interesting this year. It's a whole other conversation how Florida did the minimum wage, uh, even while they voted for Trump, and how California upheld a ban on affirmative action, even though they came out for Biden. And of course, we have our own story here in Illinois 57 or 58 percent went for Biden. And only 45% went for the fair tax. So, you know, so yeah. much in this election to unpack. I, I can't make sense of it all. We, we have about uh, three minutes left. So let's close with a lo really local question. And um, the budget just passed 29 to 21. Love to get your thoughts about this one, Rosanna and Peter. And uh, so I've been following Chicago politics a long time, Rosanna. And the narrative, you talk about a narrative they put out. Well, Flory doesn't get her 38 votes. If she doesn't get 45, she's not a powerful mayor. And, you know, it's like the city's going to quake and fall apart. And buildings <laughs> will jump in the lake and water won't run into your taps if the mayor can't get to 50 to nothing that Rom got in his first year. Uh so do you think it's a healthy sign for Chicago that it was 29 to 21, Rosanna? You were one of the 21 who voted no. Uh, 
And, uh, or do you share, I know you don't. So do you think it's a healthy sign? And I'll get Peter's thoughts after this, that there's dissent in the city council. Go ahead. I think, I think the, the part that we can call healthy is that people are not as afraid of this mayor as they were <laughs> of, of mayors before this one. Um, I think people are willing to take chances. I don't think that, that, that our mayor has necessarily done, um, any work to make sure that she's building with everybody. Um, so I, I think people are in, in ways also resentful about that. Um, so the health is relative. I think that we're going to be healthy when we actually can have the tools that we need to legislate and we are not needing uh, the blessing of the mayor for everything that we want to discuss when, you know, uh, when, when committee chairs are not appointed by the mayor and she can't decide what is it that, that we're going to be able to bring into the agenda and what goes to rules and how you stifle debate. That's when we're going to be healthy. Right now, there's no way that the city council is a healthy place for anything. Like, it's, it's not a healthy place, but we're trying to make it healthier. All right, Peter, your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with the fact that uh, people are willing to vote against the mayor, uh, against the mayor's budget. I think that um, it was actually a pretty good budget. Uh, you know, I think she put money into mental health. She put money into violence prevention. She put money into homeless issues. Uh, you know, it's always tough to raise taxes. Um, but, uh, you know, so no, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think I think things are really really tough for the mayor, and I I'm I'm I'm, I'm a fan of her. I think um, I think that she's uh, trying to do a lot. I think there's parts of the job that are, don't come naturally to her. You know, she's not um, a backslapper, and uh, you know, so what? Uh, I, I I think that for the most part, she's got the city's best interest at heart. But no, you know, this, this was a challenge from, uh, from folks like Rathana and others to just, you know, to basically say we want to be included more and we're not happy with it, where this landed. And, uh, you know, it's all, that's all good. <laughs> but, I mean, Rosanna, were you demoralized that some of the aldermen who voted yes have been like, seen, have been part of your kind of, freshman class of progressive lefty aldermen. I mean, what does that say about how feasible a sort of leftward move of the party is even in Chicago? So I, I think that the people who voted yes on the budget uh, that were part of, of that block did it for different reasons. Um, I don't think that they were happy with the budget. I think that they sort of realized that this is how the game is played. And if you want to get like anything from us, you're just gonna have to like jump in and 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 play the same game that they don't agree with and they think that you know that shouldn't happen. But uh, but I think that 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 was their take in that sense. I don't I don't think that it threatens necessarily our ability to to act together. I think that we're gonna continue working together and pushing um, for for things. But um, I definitely disagree with with uh, with Peter take on, on the mayor. And I, I think that uh, the fact that the mayor went and said out loud in the Black Caucus, um, like threatened flat out the members of the Black Caucus with not providing for their work if they voted no on the budget is a super red flag. 
males don't do that. Like they, in practice, yes, but nobody says that out loud. And it was such an incredible um, uh, disrespect. <laughs> it shows so, so much disrespect for, for Alderman, which is something that she has done since she got in office. Since the inauguration day, she was already accusing us of being corrupt. So I think it's gonna be a rocky road ahead. Well, I guess that's, uh, yeah, we ended on a spicy note of, of disagreement after an hour and a half of general consensus. Ben and I want to thank you all for, for tuning in to the, um, to the live cast tonight. And thank you to Rosanna and Peter for joining us as well. Um, so we are, um, we probably... We haven't decided yet whether we'll do the first Tuesdays in January, but since it's right around uh, the new year and people tend to be all over the place, we might skip January and, and see everyone again in February. Um, in the meantime, please uh, continue to support the hideout, um, noonchorus.com slash hideout. I'll put the link in the chat. That's where you can see all of the different um, online events the hideout is having now. And, uh, the tickets are really cheap. You can listen to music. You can listen to talk show, to shows like ours and um, really help out this uh, venue that's struggling amid the pandemic. And the other thing is, of course, please support your Chicago reader. We've been here yeah. since 1971, free every two weeks now. That's how, how often we're coming out. We lost more than 90% of our advertising revenue due to the pandemic. So any little bit helps us. You can buy like incredible merch that we're selling. I'll also put the, um, put the link in the chat. Um, you can buy merch and all the money from that goes to support us. Uh, you can buy book collections of our uh, articles from the staff. Mine just dropped today. Um, you can also just give today's giving Tuesday. So everyone is welcome to, um, to give what they can to support us. And uh, if you go to chicagoreader.com slash store, you'll find all the options for buying stuff or donating there. Um, so thank you all again. I uh, hope everyone had a good time tonight. Thank you for the spirited discussion in the chat. Ben, you have anything to add? Nothing, nothing more in it, but other than thank Rosanna and Peter for being such good sports and coming on. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Everyone have a good night. All right. You Take care, too. everybody. Thank you. Bye. Nice to meet you. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro. Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.